So we're going to finish the story, the book of Ruth today. We've covered the first two chapters. We're going to cover the last two chapters today. So we have a lot to cover. We're going to move through it rather quickly so that we can look back from the end over the whole story and try to understand the the message of this book and the place of this book in the Bible, in God's Word. Uh, the end of Ruth, you may know, is is kind of a, a mic drop moment. I won't, won't spoil it for you right now, but uh, everything culminates and comes together in a rather surprising way. And so since this is a story, uh, let me quickly recap for, for us, and especially for those who may not have been here, uh, what has happened so far in Ruth 1 and 2. So you may recall that this is happening in the days when the judges ruled, a, a dark and evil time in Israel's history when people did not uh, follow the Lord, at least very well, but everyone did what was right in their own eyes, as the book of Judges tells us again and again. On top of that, there, we know that there is a famine in the land, which is probably part of God's judgment on the people for their wickedness. And because of this famine, a man named Elimelech, along with his wife and his two sons, uh, his wife Naomi, and two sons, leave the land of Israel to go look for a better life where there's not a famine in the land of Moab, uh, among the people of Moab who were the traditional enemies of Israel. While in Moab, Bo, uh, Elimelech dies. His two sons marry Moabite wives, and then, we are told, the two sons die. So Naomi is now widowed without her husband, without her sons, in a foreign land. She hears that God had visited his people back in Israel and that the, the famine was, was ending, and so she decides to go back to her land. And she urges her two daughters-in-law daughters in daughters uh, to, to stay and, 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 and find life for them in Moab. But one of them, Ruth, insists on staying with Naomi and coming with her back to, to the land. So Naomi, the mother-in-law, Ruth, the daughter-in-law, go back to Bethlehem in the promised land that the God had given to the Israelites. But they are fully aware of, of, of their plight, of how much they have lost. Uh, Naomi has lost her husband and her two sons. Uh, we talked about last week, Ruth is a widow as well. She is desperately poor, and she's also a foreigner. And even though God's law had provisions for people like her to be taken care of, this was the time of the judges, and there was certainly no hope that people would actually follow through with taking care of people like her. So she comes, understandably, with little expectation of being treated well. And yet, as we saw last week, she, Ruth, goes out into the field to glean for food, and she just happens to come up into the field belonging to a Boaz, and Boaz just happens to be there. Boaz, we learn, is a relative of her husband's and is one of their redeemers, which we will talk about today. And Boaz, we saw, welcomes Ruth with unexpected kindness and compassion. Uh, he goes well beyond just doing the minimum required of him by God's law and personally provides for her and protects her. And we spent much of last week talking about how Boaz gives us a, 
a good picture as he obeys not only the letter of God's law, but also the Spirit as well. He gives us a good picture of God's own compassion and mercy, of the gracious ways that God welcomes us when we come to him. So that's where we're at in the story. That's what's happened. That's the first two chapters. We're going to jump into chapter 3 and go all the way through the end of the book today. So there'll be some long passages we'll need to read. So first nine verses. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. Now, there are obviously some customs and some things going on here which seem a little odd, maybe a lot odd uh, to us, which we don't fully understand. Uh, what does it mean that Ruth goes and uncovers his feet while he's sleeping? Uh, what does it mean that she says, spread your wings over your servant? But it will be clear as we go on and, and from how Boaz responds that Ruth is proposing marriage. Uh, perhaps even more forceful than that, she's calling him to marry her in doing this. But how she goes about it is pretty surprising and pretty risky. She waits till he's asleep. She secretly lies down to him, next to him and uncovers his feet. Uh, there are probably other workers, uh, other his employees, Boaz's employees, lying down, sleeping. They've just eaten and, and drank. And so there's certainly a lot of danger in this for Ruth as a young woman coming at night to a group of men who've been working hard all day and have just eaten and drank, perhaps some a little too much. Furthermore, this is the time of the judges. Now, Boaz was a worthy man, a good man, but there's no saying that all of his employees were also. In fact, he's already charged them to not touch her. So this is an extremely risky situation that she puts herself in that, and that Naomi proposes. Uh, she's also putting Boaz at risk. I mean, if anyone sees her lying down next to him, what are they going to think? Uh, we will see that Boaz will do what he can to keep this a secret. So what's going on here? Why is Ruth and Naomi, who put her up to this, doing something so risky, seemingly something so foolish? And just to be clear, this is not about Ruth and Boaz having a secret love affair and just following after their feelings. No, this is Naomi, the mother-in-law, looking out for Ruth, and Ruth, the daughter-in-law, looking out for Naomi in their mutual loss and emptiness by putting their faith in God and their law, the laws that he had set up, including this law about a, these laws about a redeemer. Now, to understand that, we have to understand what it means that Boaz was a redeemer. 
a close relative, and a redeemer. So there are a couple legal institutions in view here, a couple of laws and provisions that God has set up for his people. And they have to do with situations where God's people, where an Israelite was in distress, in poverty, and had no means of rescuing, rescuing themselves out of that. In these situations, a relative could and, and should redeem them, which doesn't simply mean give them a little help. No, it's much more personal, more involved in that. It is stepping in and doing for them what they could not do for themselves in a way that bound them together for many years. It was a very personal, long-standing commitment, this, this redemption. Now, the word redeem here means to buy something back. Something was estranged or distant or cut off or in distress in dire straits, and then it was redeemed or reconciled or brought back. A payment or transaction or arrangement was made in order to make things right, in order to bring something back that was cast off. And so there's two, two laws here. The first law had to do with property redemption. We see this, if we go back in our Bibles a little bit, to Leviticus, in Leviticus 25, says, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. So God built in provisions for the land uh, to remain in the family, to remain in a family line, and also provisions for original owner to get their land back over time. So that was one law. A second law has to do with marriage when a man died leaving a childless widow. When a man died without any heir. Without the ability to carry on his family line. In this situation, the widow's or the, the husband's brother or a close relative, as is the case here, was called to marry the widow in order to provide an heir for the dead husband. So Deuteronomy 25, we read, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. And so Ruth, as a childless widow, was in need of redemption in two ways. She was unable to carry on the family line of her, of her dead husband. Furthermore, the land that we'll, that we'll read about here, the land that belonged to her husband, was vulnerable of being cut off from the family forever. And in addition to all the other ways that she's already kind of an outcast, a foreigner, a widow, poor, she... she continues to have no means here to rescue or improve her situation. She has no status, has no power, except for this law of redemption. And Naomi knows that this Boaz is one of her redeemers, being a close relative. And so what's going on here as Ruth goes into Boaz secretly at night and tells him to spread his wings over her as a redeemer, is that she is proposing he redeem her, that he marry her 
to carry on the family line and inherit the family property. Now, if this seems ridiculous to you, it is. Don't miss the insanity of this situation. One commentator puts it like this. He says, here is a servant demanding that the boss marry her, a Moabite making the demand of an Israelite, a woman making the demand of a man, a poor person making the demand of a rich man. Was this an act of foreigner naivete or a daughter-in-law's devotion to her mother-in-law or another sign of the hidden hand of God? From a natural perspective, the scheme was doomed from the beginning as a hopeless gamble. And the responsibility Naomi placed on Ruth was quite unreasonable. And it was certainly all of those things and more. Uh, Naomi has had nothing but loss for the last 10 years and is just looking for any way to gain a family. Ruth clearly is devoted to her mother-in-law and is willing to take great risks in order to, to serve her and help her. It certainly seems that this is more about Ruth's love for her mother-in-law than any love she might have for Boaz. And yet, this is also the hidden hand of God at work. Right? Whether Ruth's actions are wise or foolish, understandable or insane, the greater point, as we'll see, is that God is using this for his purposes. To bring about a, a, a good end. And he'll continue to do that as even Boaz responds, surprisingly. Uh, next couple verses, verse 10. And Boaz said, he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So, incredibly, this plan works. In fact, better than they could have expected. Notice how willing Boaz is to respond to this proposal. I mean, Ruth is told to, to go to him as a servant, and he will do what you... Or, uh, oh. Ruth is told to go to him as a servant, and he will tell you what to do. But in fact, the opposite happens. She kind of tells him what to do, and he says, I will do all that you ask. And so God continues to shape this situation for his purposes. But there's a difficulty. As we go on in verse 12, Boaz says, And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there's a redeemer nearer or a closer relative than I. Remain tonight and in the morning if he will redeem you good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter, settle the matter today. Um, so Boaz continues to show great kindness to both Ruth and Naomi. 
Uh, Ruth and Naomi's plight continues to improve and brighten. Since they had come back to the land, having lost everything, things are beginning to turn. Continuing on, as we go into chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So more, quote-unquote, random outcomes that are working together for good. Uh, Boaz goes up to the gate, and look who happens to come by, the first-in-line Redeemer. And it just so happens that this Redeemer cannot, does not want to redeem the land if it comes with Ruth. God is continuing to providentially fashion the pieces of this story together towards his purpose. One more longer section, and then we'll start to unpack this. Verse 7. Now this was a custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malin, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malin, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Note that the Lord gave her conception and that it is to the Lord, who is, it is the Lord who is to be blessed for this child. Uh, Ruth has been barren for 10 years, but now God gives her a child. Like everything else, this is not simply due to human decisions, biological processes. This is due to God's will. How much we also need to be reminded that 
God rules over every last detail of our lives. That every good gift is from him and his cause for praise and thanksgiving and worship. And that every trial and tear is still within his providence, his purpose and power. And he promises to work them together for our good and for his glory. And thus even our trials and our tears are cause for trust and rest and prayer. We can and ought to still go to God for those things. But right now as the story closes, Naomi and Ruth are abundantly aware of God's goodness. Naomi's fortunes have returned. This child shall be a restorer of life and nourisher of old age. She had lost everything and came back to her land empty with only a widowed daughter-in-law. She felt that God had turned against her. And yet God worked all things together for good and gave her a family, gave her a family line, gave her a standing and place in society. There were so many expressions, tangible evidences of God's goodness to her. And their praise for the Lord in all of this is warranted. Now, be careful when you hear stories like this not to quickly forget all that has happened. Not to quickly forget about all of the hardships and questions and turns along the way. Especially as we begin to think of how God might work in our own life. Be careful to assume, not to assume, that every hardship will just quickly pass and be done away with. Uh, Naomi, remember, lost her husband, and her sons. There's little more tragic in this life than that. She, she lived in a foreign land without her husband for 10 years and came back to her people with uh, appearing to be like a failure, with nothing. And so God's good providence doesn't mean that every hardship quickly passes. It doesn't mean that we're promised just Short, quick hardships, but then a mostly a life full of obvious blessings. But it does mean that in all things, God is working good in our lives. Wherever you are today, you might already see some of the good that God is working. Sometimes we're on, at that perspective and we can look back or look maybe in the present and see some of the good. God gives us the grace of seeing that. But... Also, you might be in the midst of 10 years of loss and hardship and have a hard time seeing how God is going to work it for good. And it's for this reason that God gives us his promises and gives us stories like Ruth to cause us to believe and to know that he is providentially working all things together for the good of his people and the display of his glory. Um, John Piper in his book, Providence, helps us to see that the Bible tells us about God's providence, about his providential rule over all things for a reason. It's not just a point of doctrine to get right about God. It is given to us for a reason, for our good. And he says this, God has revealed his purposeful sovereignty over good and evil in order to So here's some of that purpose. 
Humble human pride. Intensify human worship. Shatter human hopelessness. And put ballast in the battered boat of human faith. Steel in the spine of human courage. Gladness in the groans of affliction. And love in the heart that sees no way forward. Now, there is a place for wondering and wrestling with various aspects of God's character, including his providence. But if all we're doing is wondering and wrestling and trying to figure it out, we've missed the point. God's character, God's providence is meant to, is for the purpose of, as Piper says, at least in part, draw us towards him in both humility and confidence. Give us strength and endurance in trials and suffering. Give us hope when all seems lost that God is still in control and cause us to worship him. Do you know something of this? However much you may or may not understand the God who providentially rules over all things, have you come to him by faith and found some of this comfort and hope and strength? Now, that's not the end of Ruth, and that's not the end of the message of Ruth. There's a few more verses. Starting at 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This story isn't ultimately about things working out well for Naomi or Ruth or Boaz. Naomi will die, just like her husband and sons. Ruth and Boaz will die. And these temporary blessings and standings will fade. In fact, all of the people in this story are long dead by the time this story is written. The hope of God for us, proclaimed to us in the Bible, is about much more than things working out for us in life. It's about much more than merely getting what we can out of this life. It's about much more than temporary sufferings being replaced by temporary joys. In fact, the Bible is not first and foremost about you and I at all, but about God and his purposes and glory. The Bible is about God's plan to redeem a people for himself, a people who he will live with for all eternity, a people who even now are learning to love him and trust him, obey him and worship him. There is a much bigger story the Bible is telling, and the end of Ruth reminds us of this. When we read at the end of 17, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is that mic drop I was talking about. Um, some of you will get this reference, but some of you won't. This is like Paul Harvey's, and that's the rest of the story. This is the origin story of King David. This was 
about King David the whole time. You see, this book was written several generations after the events that it contains. And the people who are hearing this story already know who King David was. He was the, that great, though imperfect, king who a man, he was a man after God's own heart, we are told. He was a king who led Israel to great prominence and glory. He was a poet and a worshiper who led Israel to worship God. And he was a man who became the ideal of an even greater ruler to come. And so at one level, this book takes us from the days when the judges ruled, that evil and wicked time, to the days when David reigned just in these four short chapters, through the unexpected life of a poor, widowed foreigner. From the judges to David, God providentially bringing these things about. And yet we have to take another step back from our vantage point, because this is not ultimately about King David. There is another Paul Harvey mic drop when we turn to the very first verses of the New Testament, the very first verse of the book of Matthew begins, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then if you go down a few verses, you find this, Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. So all of Scripture is one grand story told ultimately by God, about his grand plan to reconcile humanity to himself and dwell with his people for all eternity and, and through this to display the perfections of his glory and grace and the riches of his mercy. All of it is, as Paul says, to the praise of his glory. And this plan centers on the person and work of Jesus. God come in the flesh the descendant of Ruth and Boaz, the promised righteous branch from the line of David. Now, obviously, the characters in this story don't know all of that. They don't know the fullness of the plan. The author of Ruth doesn't even know the fullness of this plan. But if we are to read the Bible as Christians, as one grand story culminating in Jesus, we know this, and we have to make these connections. We know that in the words of Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And so even this story is meaningful to us because it points us to Jesus. As great as Boaz was as a redeemer, and man, his life means little for us on its own. As great as Ruth and Naomi were in their love for one another and their commitment to God and his promises, their lives mean little for us on their own. As great as King David was as a king and man of God and poet, his life means little for us on its own. Again, we need more than great human examples. We need something done for us that no mere human can do. And so rather, this story is meaningful to us because there is a greater Redeemer, one for whom the kindness and compassion and willingness of Boaz was only a shadow. There is a greater Redeemer, one who receives foreigners and outcasts and 
the poor and needy, and all who would simply come and with joy. There is a greater Redeemer, one who willingly enters into our weakness and need, takes responsibility for it by dying for our, our sin, bearing our deserved judgment, and then joins, commits himself to us, just as Boaz does. There is a greater Redeemer, one who is not limited, like Boaz, in the good that he can do, but has the power to, in fact, work all things together for our good. And there is a greater Redeemer, one who restores our standing and identity and place and gives us hope. Just as Ruth calls on Boaz, calls on Boaz to be obedient to God's law and calls on him to be a Redeemer and he doesn't hesitate, isn't turned off by her bold, risky, socially awkward request, but responds graciously. So we, when we call on Jesus to be our Redeemer, to redeem us from our sin and weakness and helplessness and need, he does not hesitate. In fact, he initiates. He initiates our redemption and salvation. He comes to pay the price while we were still sinners. And once we behold this, once we respond to him and come to him, our response is to live for his praise, to live, to seek to him, bring him glory and honor in everything we do. Jesus is far more deserving than praise and honor and worship than any of the characters in this story or any other story. That is ultimately why we're here today. That's what calls us together as a church. That's what sends us out as ambassadors for Christ and his gospel. Not because there are great human beings and, and encouraging stories that warm our hearts, but because Jesus is our God and is our Savior. Let's pray.